I love the generative moment in a really engaging conversation when the world falls away and you forget time and place. I've had listening as a secret superhero power for as long as I can remember. I think listening helps build a great conversation and real listening is done with an open curiosity and very little of your own agenda. It may sound easy, but it can be really hard to do. I like to make connections between ideas and people. It's just the way my brain works. Why do we connect with other human beings? I think it's part of the hierarchy of needs. Comfort, connection, community. I've always been uncomfortable with the question, what do you do? I don't equate what you do with who you are. We all have multiple interests, passions, families, backstories, and futurescapes that make us who we are. Every interaction changes us, some in big and some in small ways. I hope this podcast changes you. Teresa Okonkon is a Wisconsinite living in New England, a writer, a storyteller, the co-host of Stories from the Stage, and a 2020 VONA alum. In addition to writing and performing her stories, Teresa also teaches storytelling and writing workshops and classes, coaches other tellers, hosts story slams, and frequently emcees events for nonprofits. An alumni of both the Memoir Incubator and Essay Incubator programs at Grub Street, she's working on a memoir of essays about memory, family stories, and the death of her father. Teresa's essays and her bathroom selfies, which are adorable, have appeared in Midnight in Indigo, L, The Independent, WBUR's Cognoscente, and Boston.com. Her essay, Mayamo Teresa, published by Hippocampus Magazine, was named among the top essays of the week by Longreads and The Rumpus, and later nominated for a 2020 Pushcart Prize. Teresa's Teresa Instagrams gorgeous cocktails, food porn, and pics about blackness, fatness, and her very cute senior dog at ohh.jeezzz. She believes very seriously in capitalizing the B in black and the W in white. And you can read more about that on her website at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-O-K-O-K-O-N.com. side effects. My sneakers are just lying there with a defeated tongue hanging out. I know it's mocking me. The knot in my stomach tightens as I desperately try to wriggle out my foot and forcing it back and forth into the other sneaker. This exercise is harder because my cankles are spilling over the edges. The puffiness is just extra skin that barely holds back limp for other material, making up most of my body these days. Parts of me feel like a jellyfish without the grace. I feel pity for my sneakers. They can't seem to muster up for myself, moving upwards in my angry body scan. I can hear my body screwing back at me. You are decrepit. How could you let this happen to us? My body is relatively new construction that has been abandoned by a neglectful developer. It lies fallow with broken windows and Tyvek wrapping, flailing in the wind. The neighbors already consider me blight, and I am waiting for them to evict the monster. 
In exasperation, I pound my fist on the couch and cushions and yell at no one in particular. I'm only 30 years old. I use my last bit of energy to kick the useless sneaker across the room. Great, I may have pulled a muscle since that was the most exercise I had gotten in a while. Putting on my sneakers always seemed disingenuous to me. Perhaps another excuse to feel embarrassed about myself. Look at that fat girl wearing sneakers. Who does she think she's fooling? She clearly hasn't exercised in a while. This constant and utter disgust of my body is a familiar cloak of embarrassment, like the ratty old bathrobe that has become my house uniform. I ponder again, trying the medication that the annoying woman at the weight loss group suggested. I go to the group begrudgingly because I am trying to work through my food issues, but I can't stand the obvious desperation of the people. Annie Kay hides pizza in her sock drawer and whines about how guilty she feels about it. Peter R. dips circus peanuts and Cool Whip crouched on the toilet so that no one sees. I like to eat full bags of Cool Ranch Doritos and fold the empty bag into a tiny square and hide the evidence in the trash. For the next 24 hours, my face stings from the cool ranchiness. I marinate in a puddle of self-loathing and nausea on the couch. But unlike the other group members, I judge myself harshly and politely keep my suffering to myself. My martyrdom is an unwanted and ugly family heirloom passed down from my mother. I think I told you when I met you that I've, I'm a fangirl. And um, I was like a little nervous preparing for this interview. And I'm never usually nervous. I, I sort of always kind of know someone. And I think, you know, yeah. I kind of know you. I've met you before. Um, and we've had a conversation. So it's not like we're strangers. But but I got that like, um, I want to have my shit together. I want to make sure that oh, I, gosh. I ask her good <laughs> questions. <laughs> Please, please don't worry about that. I feel like I'm just like the most average person. Like I'm just I'm a very regular person. So it's always it's like weird to me when people um, are like in any way intimidated by me. Like I just had my last day at my day job um, a week ago today. And one of my coworkers was like, it's been so cool, you know, working with you. I think you're the best kind of celebrity. And I was like, I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> I'm just a lady that lives here. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I think because you're visible, though, like because you're like on TV and um, and you have presence, there is something about like um, thinking about you in that way. And I think... <laughs> Sure. It's, it's a compliment, but I can understand it also. Um, it puts perhaps an unrealistic ex- expectation on you that, like, <laughs> you're not real. You're not a real person either. So, um, yeah, no, I totally, I do take it as a compliment, but I also want people to like. I'm just, you know, I'm also just a very regular person. I, you know spend most of my time watching catfish and SVU as not exciting. Like <laughs> my life is not exciting. <laughs> Nothing exciting about it. I'm just a lady, you know? Um, I, um, I, I was part of a virtual event last night. I, I attended mm. it that, um, it was Ocean Vuong and um, Chanel Miller speaking. Yeah, and... I saw that on Instagram. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was wonderful. Or I saw an ad for it. 
It was it was sponsored by Books and Books, which is an independent bookstore, and um, it was a it was a really lovely conversation. And I know that um, Ocean Bong is a is a professor, and he mm-hmm. he comes with that um, presence and that at that sense of sensibility and and also that language. Um, but Chanel Miller is. Um, Gosh, she's so impressive for being someone so young, and her book, yeah, um, just her book is so good, gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Ugh, I love that book. I'm actually teaching a writing class um, called "Developing Your Personal Essay" at Grub Street right now, and um, it started. Sometimes it's a ten week. This time it's eight weeks. I think they like shortened the ten weeks to eight in the summertime, and um, the first week was this week Wednesday and so next week Wednesday is the second week and um one of their reading assignments is um an excerpt of um know my name because she the way that she plays with time in that book like her use of flash forward and flashback is like so seamless and so well done um and so uh our topic for next week is time so we're reading um an essay from Carmen Maria Machado's mm. um, In the Dream House. Mm-hmm. Um, I assign this essay all the time. It's the one where they take, it's called Dream House as a Road Trip to Savannah, where they like go to the founder of the Girl Scouts house or whatever, because one of them is writing about it. Um, and it, it, it comes at this point in the book where um, they go on this road trip and then the girlfriend um, like tries to like make out with her, have sex with her or whatever in public. And then she's like, but it's like super early in the relationship. And she kind of just like sees it as this like flirty in the moment thing. And then they go back and they have sex in the hotel room or whatever. And then they go out to dinner. And then when they're leaving dinner, there's this guy walking down the street um, who like yells at them or something. Um, and like is like yelling homophobic slurs at them, and the girlfriend intervenes, and I think maybe the girlfriend punches the guy even or something, and um, the girlfriend is like, "I'm really sorry that like I didn't res- respond sooner to that guy," and Carmen is like, "What do you mean? Like, you know, what's what's sooner than immediately?" And she's like, "Oh, I saw that guy coming like a mile away. Like, maybe this is new to you, but it's not new to me." Um, and before they get to the the house, there's the girlfriend is driving and she's just driving super recklessly and they like pop a tire. And um, so that's like the arc of the essay. And it like ends with them on the beach. Um, actually, I think they go to the beach and then they, it ends with them driving back home. But um, it's this essay that covers like just a single weekend. And all of these events happen over the course of a single weekend. Um, and I, part of the reason that I love teaching it is because if my students have read the whole book, then like they see that essay totally differently mm. than if they've only read that essay. Like if, if the, all you have is that snippet, you're like, oh, this is like a new relationship and it feels exciting and she's protecting her and blah, blah, blah. And if you've read the whole book, you're like, yes, and. Like, these are, like, tiny signs of what's to come in, in the abuse in this relationship. So I like using it to teach about time because so often I find that my students, like, you know, when you're telling a story, you want to, like, tell everything you know about that thing. Um, and you feel like you're doing a disservice to that thing if you don't tell the whole story. And I'm like, no, 
you don't have to tell the whole story to tell this moment. Um, and I think that that story does a great job of that because it's like, there's like seeds of, of the larger concept in, in the snippet in that, in that essay. Um, but that essay is like contained by itself. Mm. Um, I just think it does a great job of talking about or demonstrating the use of time. So I like to use that. And then I use the excerpt from an excerpt from Chanel Miller, um, which like, of a seamless flashback um, to talk about like why she's going into therapy. Um, but yeah, I love Chanel Miller. That book is fantastic. Oh, and this is what it's like to talk to me that I just like randomly start talking about crap. <laughs> but I, I love, I love that too, because that's the organic nature of, or what I've tried to do with the organic nature of the podcast is sometimes totally. I forget to introduce myself and introduce the guests. So I'm just going to, I'm pausing <laughs> to say who I am. So this is Felicia Ryan, the Hi Felicia podcast. And my guest today is Teresa. Teresa, I practiced your last name multiple times, but I always have this fear of getting people's names wrong would you just say and introduce yourself a little bit no worries it's Teresa okokin okokin okay mm-hmm. and i read your bio previously and we um already covered the fact that i'm fangirling a little bit um but in a positive <laughs> way where i can still engage and not be like oh my god it's Teresa from tv <laughs> um so you teach, I hear, I hear the teacher in you when you're teaching and having done, I feel like at the heart of what you do is storytelling and it shows up in a variety of ways. Like your Instagram is storytelling. Your writing is storytelling. <laughs> your teaching is storytelling. How do you, how do you see like the magic thread that goes through all the different things that you like to do or are interested in or where your craft is? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm writing a memoir and mm. my memoir is, is an essay collection. And one time I was talking to my big sister about it and just talking about like how I kind of didn't know. I like, didn't know how to write a memoir that was just like one straight story. Mm-hmm. I was like, that just doesn't make sense. I feel like it needs to be like told in these like smaller mm-hmm. snippets stories like that's how I understand things is in these like smaller snippets and she goes you know why that is right and I was like no I do not know why that is <laughs> like if I did maybe I would feel better about it um and she she said that's how dad talked like that's how our dad told or like like taught a lesson mm. was by telling us a story um And she's like, sometimes his stories would go on and on and on, and it would feel like it was never going to end. And sometimes it was just like, you know, you would ask him a simple question. He'd be like, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then he'd be like, so that's why the peanut butter is in the cupboard and not in the fridge or whatever, you know? Um, so, So, yeah, I think for me, telling a story is truly how I understand things. And oftentimes, you know, for me to figure out how I'm feeling, even the way that I get to how I'm feeling is mm. to tell a story. Yeah. Um, and so it really is just like the way that my brain works. Um, I think of myself as a social worker first, my degrees in social work. And I feel like social work is like mm-hmm. at the base of my heart. Mm-hmm. And even as a social worker, you know, the way that I would approach working with um like my first job was in child protection and then I 
through the Peace Corps, and then I started working primarily with youth. And the way that I approached social work, social work was often by way of storytelling, you know, mm, like yeah. you connect with people by telling them a story or I guess it's like, it's kind of like, you know, some teachers will like sing or like come up with a song to like teach a math equation or whatever. And yeah. like having it be in a song yeah. helps it stick in your brain. And yeah. I think that stories do the same thing when it's in a story, it, it sticks in your brain. I think the using the story as a method of understanding too. Um, some of the guests I had previous to you, one very specifically talks about family stories through art. So she mm-hmm. teaches this. It's it's kind of a blend of storytelling and art therapy, but it's using potentially pictures or objects and then remembering a story around them. So it's a way of connecting mm-hmm. family history with art and um sounds like that's kind of what you're doing through your writing and I totally connect with the idea of memoir through snippets because my memoir is written that way as well so totally um yeah and objects and colors and feelings and I like also the time playing with time so having you know maybe speaking present but then remembering something and then also can you can project future escape that well as well i think if that makes any sense yeah absolutely absolutely i also whenever i teach in it or i'm facilitating a a workshop if there's going to be enough time um i frequently like as on the first day i'll have people bring an object and like introduce themselves by way of that object um because i feel like it's going to get them to tell a story um and that will that will get people to remember you know like that's the person with the rubber chicken and the rubber chicken symbolizes blah 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 (laughs) like it just like helps people like hold on to something in their head yeah in a different way that than if you're just like my name's Teresa I'm from Wisconsin you know that's that may also be like the psychological training and the social social work um like sphere or lens that you're helping apply you have to in those situations I have some human development background as well that Mm -hmm. you have to develop your listening skills so and you also have to um, you have to know when and where to apply empathy and sympathy and um, also kind of be looking at the big picture of um, what what people are telling you and um, you know, how that story fits in. And is their story um, something that they've retold many times mm, and they believe mm-hmm. it? So, like, who are they in that? Who? What character are they in that story? I'm sure there's mm-hmm. times when you've seen that at play in some of the social work that you've done, perhaps. Yeah. That's kind of a thing that I um, am exploring in my memoir and that it's a theme that I come back to a lot in my writing um is this idea of like stories that we tell and retell or that were told to us and like that sometimes like for me sometimes I wonder do I remember that thing happening or do I remember the story of that thing happening Mm. um 
And if all I can remember is the story, like after, after a certain point, it's like, I don't even have the memory anymore. I just remember the story itself. And that's yeah. separate, like in my brain that doesn't live in the same place. Um, and then it's like, how do you know it's true if what you remember is the story and not the event? Yeah. Um, and does that matter? And, you know, the, the things that get lost in the memory, but like versus the things that get continued in the story, like what does that have to say about yeah. what happened and what matters of that that happened? I hear a lot of people say oftentimes, um, I have like quite a bit of training in um, yoga as well. And in the yo yoga community, oftentimes people will say like, you have a feeling or you have a belief. Is it true? Mm -hmm. And I hate when people say that because I'm like yes it is true like every, everything I feel is true every every thought that I have is a true thought and like I, I don't know what that means you know right. when like like when I if I remember a story happening a certain way that's because that's how it happened to me so yes that is true even if that truth doesn't in, include everything you know like yes Something not including everything doesn't make it less true. It just makes it true to me. And then there's a true to you. And like somewhere, somewhere by combining those and probably a whole lot of other stories, we get to the truth, capital T. But like my truth is no, doesn't, isn't not real because it doesn't include everything, yeah, you know? Absolutely. So, One of the things that Ocean Wong was saying last night was, um, I was so glad that he brought it up because I had wondered about why his book um, on on Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous was called a novel. And I mm. thought, you know, who made that decision? And he was saying that he chose to make it a novel because um, calling it a memoir, he was it was like a reclamation of language. So he was saying, like, by calling it a memoir, you know, and fact-checking and... Um, making family members real or not or um, allowing permission by making it a novel he didn't have to do any of that and so he could he could have it be as it is and have those people be characters rather okay. than worry about um, feelings or facts and he said that it's a way of reclaiming his story and I thought wow, like that's really powerful because when I read it, I thought, oh, somebody didn't know what genre to put this in and that's why they're calling it a novel. Because it, mm. it was memoir, it's poetry, it's, it's he plays with time and place. He uses a lot of really beautiful metaphor. Um, and and I just thought, oh my God, I love, it was, ex it was a very expansive idea to me because I thought mm -hmm. history is, History, people think of like facts and figures and like Magna Carta was signed in this date. Okay, that's a whole year. Are we, are we sure? Like where what, was it in October? Was it was right. it a year before or a year after? Like, like, so if you tried to quiz me on that, <laughs> I might get mm -hmm. that date wrong. Like, and mm -hmm. so when we're talking about personal histories and personal stories, I think we re we need to reclaim that language around it because memoir even I think can be tricky because people want you to prove those facts. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hear that. But at the same time, like I've heard Ocean Vong. I think Ocean's um, pronouns are they, them. Um, I'm not yes, positive. Yes, you're right. But I feel I'm like sorry. I, Thank I you for saying that. that. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Um, I've, I've heard Ocean speaking and read Ocean's work about calling their book a novel as opposed to calling it a memoir. And like, I understand that perspective, but at the same time, I'm like, ah, I don't think that's totally fair. Like, I don't think it's fair to say, like, I don't think it's fair that memoirists are expected to, you know, somehow be presenting everybody's story Mm -hmm. and like the capital T truth, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's not what this is. This is a memoir, which is like my memories of this experience, you know? Um, And I think I, I appreciate more so when at the beginning of a memoir, there's like some kind of, you know, the writer in some way acknowledges these, this is, this is what happened as I remember it. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is the truth through my eyes. Um, And like, I mean, I remember there's there's all kinds of memories that I have in my head and that anybody has in their head that are, like, not quite what happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And I guess I feel like it's, it's more accurate to the human experience to just, like, acknowledge that that is how our brains work, you know? I mean, it's like our extremely corrupt legal system has taught us anything. It's that, like, you know, eyewitness accounts of things are, like, without a camera, oftentimes not all that accurate, you know? So, yes, yeah, I don't know. Like, I see where Ocean's coming from on that, but I'm also like, I don't know, I feel like you can call it a memoir because it's it's true to you, you know? But if you want to, like, intentionally insert things that you know didn't happen, um into that then i can understand you know saying this this is a work of fiction you know i loved um i'd like you to talk a little bit about how you reclaim language as well because i know that you use the word fat and i love that you're claiming that how do you think about that word what word i'm sorry fat fact fat Oh, fat. Oh, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, yes, I do refer to myself as fat. And I think for me, I mean, there's, there's definitely, you know, sort of fat positive people that I followed. Um, and I was like, I want to get to a place where I think about this word differently. And so I'm going to be like paying attention to people who do that. Um, and I'm gonna, you know, through, through their guidance, get, get myself to a place where that's how, how I'm thinking, because, you know, it, it is we as society that made fat a bad word. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, Fat just mean like fat just means like heavy, you know, like that you like have like extra body weight or whatever. Like that's that's like just that's all that it means. And the fact that it has a negative connotation is a connotation that we put on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think by paying attention to other people, especially other um, femmes and women. Um, that call themselves fat is how I got to a place where I was like, okay, I can do that. And I think 
folks that I paid attention to were like the fat sex therapist and Virgie Tovar, um, Sam Irby, um, Lindy West, like folks that just are like, yeah, I'm fat. Like I'm fat and I own it. And it's not, that's not a bad thing. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, sometimes it is a little bit of like fake it till you make it. You know what I mean? I think probably when I first started openly calling myself fat, I probably was not totally comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got comfortable with it by doing it and by practicing it. I just like, I'm at a place where I don't think that fat is a bad word. Um, and I also don't think that like my body is bad that like there's something wrong with my body and that that belief came like way earlier than fat not being a bad word like the the understanding that there's my body is not bad um and that there isn't like something to solve about my body Mm -hmm. that really came through my practice of yoga um and of just like learning to love and embrace myself i was extremely skinny as a kid um i was pretty skinny until like mm, 25 27 something like that um so i definitely like had to learn learn to be comfortable oh i'm so sorry there's a sound (laughs) um i had to learn to be comfortable uh being fat because I didn't become a fat lady until, you know, I was like pushing 30. Um, And that's like the age where I feel like a lot of people that gain weight at that age feel really bad about it. And so I had to do a lot of work to not feel bad about it. Um, And I was like, you loved yourself, you know, two years ago, you're still the same person. So why wouldn't you still love yourself? You know, but that was work for sure. I feel that as well. I've I've been every size between four and twenty two, and um, I've lost more than one hundred and fifty pounds. I've gained more than a hundred pounds. I've I've done a, a lot of my own work around it, and I don't see the word fat as pejorative. I do use it about myself. I'm um, I'm engaged. I'm going to be getting married in the fall, and congratulations! Thank you. And um, I went and picked out my wedding dress, um, mm-hmm. and it was it was and I wanted the cultural experience of it, and I also have you know funny snarky friends. I am not wearing anything traditional. That's not me. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we went to the traditional store just to have the experience, and you know I ch- yeah. checked all the boxes and said I wasn't going to wear a train and this and that and they picked out this lace monstrosity and I tried it on and it was horrible and my first friend I looked at her face and she was just shaking her head and going no no and then I let my friends pick out a dress and the dress that they picked was the dress that I ended up buying and it's gorgeous I love that um, yeah. but it's a size 18 so as I was checking out and putting my deposit down and having my you know, size done. She said, okay, there's a sizing charge. And I said, what? And she goes, this sizing charge for anything over a 14. And I said, I just went, boo, (laughs) boo. I go, that's wrong. That is wrong. I said, that is just absolutely wrong. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get the dress, but I I want the name of the designer and I want, I'm going to write a letter and I'm going to complain about it because I'm sorry, like, 
why why that's so gross and that is so um, gross the the dress shop actually re refunded the charge she said because it's your wedding dress we're refunding the charge Good. and and i agree with you it is wrong and but they used to do that that like wedding industry used to do that for all bridal gowns uh it was up to 150 dollars for anything over a 14. yeah that is super gross and i'm really glad that the store reversed that charge because like I'm the type of person that, like, if that happens to me, I would be like, you're going to take this charge off or you're going to deal with some public consequence. Like, I I am going to go buck wild on this, you know? So. I, was, I was surprised that I booed. Like, I actually booed loud. <laughs> like, I went boo. I love that. And, and I was like, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. Like, I, I have worn every size in between, like... I'm getting married. Like I can't magically transform my body overnight. Like I, it was a lot yeah. for me to kind of get check my head and like mentally get myself geared up to even go dress shopping because I was like, yeah. I had perhaps an image in my mind. And this is also probably why I never got married because I didn't, I don't want the whole shebang and I like my wedding reception is going to be a carnival. Like we're going to have, <laughs> tarot card readers and henna artists and poets the the traveling poetry emporium is coming and they're going to type on their typewriters and create poems oh, and that's beautiful we're going to have a popcorn machine and you know things like that so the idea that i was going to put this dress on and someone was going to slap a charge on me because i had to wear that i'm wearing the size 18 like i want to embrace not. that like i love this dress yeah. i want to embrace the whole experience I can't magically transform myself or my body. And I don't really know that I want to do that. Um, yeah. And you shouldn't have to. Right. Right. There should be no should in that. So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, as I work out and, and exercise and whatever, you know, maybe I'll gain muscle or whatever, but that's, that's not, it's not a should, you know? Yeah. There was this, like, monthly underwear club, you know, that, like, they would send you three pairs of underwear every month or something like that for a thought rate that I really wanted to join. I don't remember what, what they're called. Um, and part of the reason that I really wanted to join was because on, like, all of their social media, they always have, like, fat women in the ads. And I was like, oh, I love this, you know. <laughs> like, I'm, like, the algorithm worked. I'm into it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, but then I went to their website to sign up. And if you're over, I think if you're over a large, um, they, which is like, you know, I guess like a 14, they upsell, like you have to pay extra wow. on, on your membership. And I was like, how dare you yes. have fat women in your ads? Like you're, right. you're, you're like, luring in a very specific population you know and not just that it's like you're luring in people who like even people who are skinnier you know but want these want to buy underwear from a company that's body positive and they're not they're not even going to know that over a certain size there's an upcharge because like they're a medium or they're a small and they feel good about getting underwear from this place that like has fat models because it makes them feel good. You know, I can understand that. Um, in the same way that like as an able-bodied person, if I saw an ad with a person in a wheelchair, I'm going to be more likely 
to want to buy from that company, right? I'm like, yeah. ooh, this company is like doing inclusion. Like I want, I want yep. to be part of it, you know? Um, yeah, and I just like harassed them on their Instagram for months. <laughs> and I sent, I sent their Instagram to like, I, I mean, I'm, I sure I sent it to like Virgie Tovar, Lindy West, and Sam Irby, and like anyone I could think of um, that like maybe would make a post and would have a louder voice than I did um because I was like this is so ridiculous this is so ridiculous and they you know their response of course was like well the larger sizes require more fabric and I was like I don't care you know, like so even out the prices like right. even it out throughout everyone right. that's totally ridiculous uh, like it also re- requires more fabric to do a large versus an extra small but like the extra small doesn't cost less right you know than the large does so why does a 2x cost more than a large and like it just and like that whole like it's more fabric okay so men's clothes have more fabric in them why are women's clothes more expensive right like shut like that's just a stupid response i'm like that's a dumb response and you must think that i'm dumb if i'm going to accept that response it's insulting that you would give me that you know right yeah, Ugh, gross. And, and well, I appreciate your booze, and I'm glad I just lose that charge. <laughs> I was I was kind of shocked that that came out. Like that was my first reaction because I was having a nice conversation with the lady up until that point. Because I was like, <laughs> "What charge was that again?" Like it was just like the it was just like a little like someone had like flicked me in the head, and I was like, mm-hmm. "What? What was that again?" Um, yeah. Did you, did you watch um, Shrill on Hulu at all? Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. And have you ever heard any interviews with A.D. Bryant? Um, I don't think so. Oh, she talks. So I think Terry Gross did an interview with her around around the shrills in the series when it yeah. was coming out. And A.D. was talking about getting dressed for SNL mm-hmm. and how <laughs> she, you know, she would like all the other cast, female cast members would be presented with like racks of clothes and there'd be like three outfits for her. And mm-hmm. she, and she'd be like, um, can I have something nice to wear too? Like, right. <laughs> like it, sh- it shouldn't be that hard. Like, but everyone has different bodies. Like, yeah, it really just should not be that hard at all. It really shouldn't. It 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 does. I love. Go ahead. I love Shrill so much. Um, and in the first season and in this more recent second season, I think what like part of what I love about it the most is the sex. And I'm not really a person who like needs to have a lot of sex in a show. Like I actually don't want there to be sex in a show unless it's like make sense with the plot i think it's annoying when it's just like clearly there are sex scenes to like make this a sexy show but it like doesn't it's not necessary for the plot um and i thought that in shrill the sex scenes were always necessary for the plot and i love having like like a you know mainstream tv show showing a fat person having sex even better when it was like a fat person and another fat person because sometimes she's having sex with like pretty skinny dudes you know yes yes um but a lot of times she's having sex with other fat people and i'm like this is what i want like i want all content to really just like be this. yes <laughs> like if it was only that it would be great for me i loved the um the pool party that she went to where she was like mm-hmm. and then she was like it was like her awakening like 
oh, these people are gorgeous. They're owning. Yeah. It's all different shapes and sizes and types of people and color. And, and yeah, she was just, I, I loved, I loved that scene so much. I think that that is so pivotal to me, that idea also of putting on a bathing suit when you're a larger size yes. and you come from a history of having a smaller body and not, mm -hmm. not necessarily having that sense of self-consciousness around what do I look like? And then going to the beach is, it can be a liberating experience because totally you look around and like, you know, it's the fat old guy with the bikini and like, um, you know, someone who's a baby and, and it's just, yeah, it's real life. Yeah, I actually just bought a new swimsuit. I think this week. I think it was just this week that I bought a new. Yeah, just this week, I bought a new swimsuit. And because um, I was like, oh, you know, it's summertime, and like I have some friends who are trying to get an Airbnb with a pool, yada yada. So I was like, okay, I want to have a a new suit. And I was pretty sure that the swimsuit that I have, I have one swimsuit that I really like that's a full piece. And I was like, I think that will still fit, but we're trying to get one, get an Airbnb for more than one day. And I was like, I'd like to have more than one suit to wear. Um, and I have a couple of, um, you know, tops and bottoms, like tanks, tankinis and bottoms um, that I sort of bought a couple years ago to mix and match. And I was like, I think the tops will all still fit, but I bet the bottoms won't. Um, and so I wanted to get, new bottoms and I was like I'll probably just get like one new top because a friend of mine um sent me a picture of her like at at a pool recently and she had a top and I really liked the cut of it so I was like I want to try to get a cut that looks like that anyhow I went to Target and um I it's so funny because as as like a large lady like as a fat lady I'm really careful with not I try not to wear um all over large print florals because I feel like an all over large print floral is like gives a message to the world that like I'm not okay with you seeing my body yes, you know like yes. they just hide, like remind yeah. me of yeah they remind me of that kind of dress I the dress or the top or whatever has to be like very specifically cut for me to wear an all over floral you know like yep. it's a little floral is different, but when they're really big, you know. Um, and so there were two um, tops, two bikini tops that I really liked, but both of them had these, like, pretty big florals on them. And I was just like, oh, I just feel like I'm going to – I don't want to look like a person who's not comfortable with her body, you know. Yes. Like, I don't want to give that message – Certain, especially not in in a swimsuit, you know, like right. So I I like carried around this one in particular. One one of them it only went up to a large, and I needed an, an XL. So I was like, okay, well, probably solved on that one. I can't get it anyways. Um, and then the other one they had an XL, and I like carried around, carried it around, and then I ended up not getting it, and not because I, I liked it, you know, like it was a cute suit and everything, but I was like, I just think it's gonna look like I'm trying to cover my body in a large flower or something and I was just like I just can't I can't do it so I only bought one and it's leopard print and I'm very excited about it well kudos to you it is it is it's like um it's like planning for war sometimes like 
going going into a store or shopping for things because you're already doing some mental I find I'm doing some mental gymnastics around um how I want to look or how I'm going to be perceived Mm -hmm. but then you add your body size on top of that and you're like I don't want to hide but I want to be I want to feel like I'm complimenting myself there's parts of my body that I'm very comfortable showing and there are other parts I'm not as comfortable but that's sort of like Like anyone yeah like anyone um but sometimes like with a larger size like they're giving you a bag like I don't I don't need mm-hmm. a bag. Yes. I don't <laughs> want that. Like, I I like my body, you know? Like, I would I would like to show off in the same way that, like, anybody does. Like, right. I want to look cute, you right. know? Yes. Everyone wants to look cute. Yeah, of course. And I feel like Target has done, in the last couple of years, Target's plus-size section in general, I feel like, has improved. Yeah. So I was really looking forward to the swimsuits, and I was pretty disappointed. I was, like, surprised to be disappointed but I was just like yeah it's just not hitting it you know like I don't know there were a lot of suits that I was like you know like just like smaller cups and whatever that I was like that's I don't want that but like I want that print you know like I want that print in something that is gonna be different you know (laughs) like just cut different so I don't know swimsuits are super hard I think when you're when you're plus size or fuller size woman you know it's just hard to get suits because i think so often they're just like oh this woman's not going to want to show herself so we need to like give her give her a back you know what have you done with your uh downtime in pandemic i know i follow you on instagram so i love that you take pictures of mini and uh food and cocktails yeah, I mean, I think I've just, like, continued to live my life the same way, basically, <laughs> except only better because I don't have to leave my house anymore. Um, I don't – I love driving, but I hate commute. Um, I – I well, it's like the drive to get there and the drive to get back. I don't mind that. But my day, because I usually have, like, you know, five jobs at any one time, usually involves a lot of, like, stops and drives in between and that's what I don't like you know then just like the bounce from one place to another and just like having that makes everything take longer whereas like in this pandemic year one of the benefits for me has been that I can manage having all these different jobs because I can transition from one from one job to another in a matter of like five minutes you know just like get up stretch and then do the next job you know um but yeah, I did. I I moved. Um, I moved to Providence, Rhode Island. I had been in Boston for, um, well, I'd been in Massachusetts for ten years. I'd been in Boston within city limits for eight years. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I very much want to move back to Boston. My move to Providence is like certainly has always been intended to be temporary. Um, but I moved, and that was a big change that happened for me in the last year. And um, when I was in Boston, I had roommates, uh, so we all shared a fridge, and so we each got, like, one shelf on the fridge, and I moved out here, and I was like, wow, I have a whole fridge to myself, which is not something that I was thinking about in terms of not having roommates. I was mostly like, now I get to walk around in my underwear. <laughs> that was, like, the number one goal is, like, now I don't have to put pants on all the time, um, but... 
yeah, I was like, oh, perk. This is like a nice perk that I wasn't thinking of, which is like there's a whole fridge and it's only my stuff in it. Um, and I think that was a big part of that and the fact that, you know, in pandemic time you have to cook at home so much more, whereas I'm used to having, you know, probably at least one gig a week. So I'm like out to eat at least once a week or I go yeah. with friends or whatever. And that definitely stopped. Uh, so, yeah. So when I have to cook for myself, it's like there's this meme going around right now that's like I went to the grocery store and like bought all this food. And like on day one, I made salmon and asparagus. On day two, I made burgers. And on day three, I was like, I'm a lot of ideas. And then I ordered a pizza. And I was like, that's exactly how my life is. Like, that's <laughs> like. To the tea, those are also my go-to things to cook. Um, except I usually make broccoli instead of asparagus with my salmon. Um, so I joined uh, the Martha Stewart's meal plan. Um, it's called Mar- Martha, Martha and Marley's Spoon. Yes, or yes Marley's Spoon. Marley's Spoon and Martha, I've tried it, actually, like yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, there's a lot of complaints about Marley's Spoon because you know, sometimes the shipping is late or I've never had rotten foods in my boxes, but I think depending on where you live, it seems like certain regions, the shipping is really bad. Um, but I am just like delighted. Like it's, it's like one of the best things I've ever done with my life. I mean, when we get done with this call, I'm going to have Swedish meatballs um, with like smashed potatoes and peas and a side salad of arugula like it's gonna be great you know like and that's because of martha stewart Like I, I love hate her like i love like she totally um, i love hate her she i back in i wrote a whole piece called she's not living here and it's all about martha and how she gave me anxiety and i used to have this like internal stress around looking at her magazine and her recipes and wanting my life to be perfect and have people like you know diy pillows on sun drenched anointed couches and people who yeah. planned trips to bali and drink you know bespoke cocktails but my life was not like that because i have dog who throws up on the rug and i live with a very large man who leaves his shoes in the middle of things and we have a dining room table that's cluttered with junk and my own stuff and boxes that need to be returned mm-hmm. so like life mm-hmm. life is not martha stewart but martha stewart gives you something to aspire to and and now i've learned i can like pick and choose those things and i don't have to like always age my terracotta pots with like yogurt and (laughs) all the crazy things totally and also like you don't have you don't have like a chef that lives in your house a gardener that lives in your house a pool boy that probably lives in your house and a personal assistant you know like you don't have all those things either and there's there's a reason why Martha Stewart's life looks so like beautiful and curated it's because it is and she pays people to curate for her you know yeah i mean the woman is a domestic goddess i'm not trying to take that away from her right but she's not doing all of her own gardening you know like she pays someone to do her gardening the way she tells them to do it you know and there's like a ferocity with her perfectionism too like i'm sure that um, I'm sure that things taste wonderful and look beautiful in her home, but 
there must <laughs> I feel like there's anger behind some of it too there <laughs> must be yeah there, yeah and like that's the thing that like I've recognized that like striving to perfection and like you know always being able to see the um the carpet the vacuum marks on the carpet is just not something that I can aspire to and still have like a sanity about myself because yeah or like do other things <laughs> I mean who has time for that you know I think I'm like, I am not a perfectionist at all. I'm a very messy person, actually. And um, I mean, I like to be tidy. I like my home to be tidy. Um, but I'm definitely like, uh, people are coming over tidy up. Uh, <laughs> or like, no one's come over in a very long time. You need to tidy up anyways. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I think because of that, I can, you know, follow people and, like, look at people like Martha Stewart and never, like, aspire to be them or feel bad about myself for not being them. Yeah. While at the same time appreciating elements of them, you know, yeah. and, like, yeah. incorporating those elements. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I mean, I love Lisa Martha Stewart. She's so problematic, but, like, she's a problematic babe for me, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So part of your bio, you said, you know, you are very serious about capitalizing the B in black and the W in white. Tell me, mm -hmm. tell me about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So lots of layers to this. First off, I am the child of immigrants. Um, my parents were both born in Africa, my dad in Nigeria and my mom in Ghana. Um, and then they immigrated separately to the United States in 1969 and met, I think, in 1972, I want to say, mm -hmm. in Wisconsin. Um, and then me and my siblings were all born here in the United States. Mm. And so when I was a kid, um, I very much, like, identified as African-American because mm. I was like, my parents are from Africa. I am American, African-American. That's how that works. Um, and I... I, in some ways, made a distinction between Black Americans and African Americans because when you're a kid of immigrants, like you, there is a distinction. You know, like their their culture, the culture is completely different. Mm -hmm. um, like I was not raised on like soul food that's considered very Black American is not food that I I didn't eat anything like that until I was in college you know like I didn't I didn't eat I really don't think I had baked macaroni and cheese until I was in college like it's that that severe you know mm. I certainly did not have collard greens until I was in college like none of that you know um and so for me like black is a culture and that's like it's a culture that like I I have become part of um, that I don't think was originally the culture that I was like raised in. I think I was raised in an African-American child of immigrants culture. Yeah. Um, and I think that and that's not to say that immigrants are not also black in the United States. But I just I think for me, because I like truly recognize that there is a culture around blackness in the United States. Like, it seems so clear to me that it would be capitalized. Um, and it feels insulting to me for it to not be capitalized. Like, mm -hmm. it feels like not acknowledging that, like, this is a real culture. Why aren't you capitalizing it? You know, like, we wouldn't not capitalize Asian. Like, that would be yeah. crazy. 
Um, so for me, I'm like, yeah, it's a real thing. Like black culture is a real thing. And so we, we should capitalize it in the same way. And I think that like at this time, you know, like when I first, when I first started publishing my writing, which is super recently, like 2019, I think was probably the first time that I had a piece published. Um, and at that time, I needed to like have a conversation with, with an editor about capitalizing the B in black. Um, and I feel like I have at least one piece that's published that the B in black is not capitalized because the editor was like, we don't do that. Um, wow. At this point now, most publications have um, transitioned to always capitalizing the B in black because I think um, it's like official AP standard now to capitalize the B in yep. black. Yep. In, in recognition that it is indeed a culture. So for me, the same thing is true for white. And, you know, I've, I've definitely heard all kinds of arguments that like, you know, that it's like part of the movement of white supremacy to capitalize the W in white oh, really? um, to make it, you know, higher or whatever than other people because they're white supremacists and that's what they want to do. Um, but for me, like, it's not about that. It's because whiteness is a culture in the United States. Yeah. And I think allowing the W to be lowercase is allowing white people in the United States to continue to believe that there is no white culture, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and in, in in many ways for me, that is only perpetuating white culture because white culture in the United States is just like this isn't white culture this is just normal you know right. and i'm like yeah. we're it's the not default just normal right like it's it's yeah. not just normal it's not the default it is actually your culture like it is actually whiteness um and that's part of why you see this 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 way that's part of why you eat that food or whatever yeah. you know yeah, um absolutely. and i think that to recognize it as a culture for me takes away some of the power of it being the default and it being the normal that it like is a specific thing it's not just standard it's yeah. specific um so for me i'm like i don't understand i don't get how people can be like we capitalize the b in black but not the w in white and like if you if you get it for black how could you not get it for white yeah. the only way for me that you don't get it for white is because you are you believe that white is normal and so you don't think that you have to acknowledge it I've appreciated your voice on social media and having you in my feed in, uh, you know, over the pandemic and a lot of the events that took place. And, um, you know, I want to give this compliment to you and and obviously hear feedback, but I mean it truly as a compliment that I, I've learned a lot from some oh, of the things you. that you've said. And I appreciated your perspective because... Um, I was having lunch with a friend beforehand and I was saying how much, how embarrassing it is in some regards to know that there are things I didn't even know that I learned this year in this past year mm -hmm. in the past two years and, um, and that there's more, more to learn and that's okay. And, and I'm actually, there's a, a thing called a VIA strength survey and it's uh, sort of like psychological profile but it's sort of what your five top strengths are and my, one of my top 
five strengths is love of learning. So mm. I'm okay to constantly kind of be in that state of incorporating new information. It can be challenging at times because you're like, whoa, I thought I knew what I knew, but I didn't know mm -hmm. what I didn't know. And, yeah. um, and there's a range of stuff out there that, you know, realizing like one of my guests, we talked about microaggressions and she does a lot of work in that area. And she really was one of the first people that really like tuned me into what that was. And, and like, you know, am I part of it? How do I propagate it? How, mm. um, learning also part of being part of a writer's group where I have young, um, young folks who use they and, and really understanding why pronouns are important and then using my pronouns now in a in a way that allows people to for it to be norm for it to be accepting for it to be if i'm going to share my pronouns and that means that i'm open for you sharing your pronouns and mm -hmm. ha and happy actually sometimes when people cor correct me in those and that you know did i get it wrong did i say something that i didn't think was offensive but that actually it's received as offensive because of my whiteness or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. or because I got mm -hmm. it wrong. So I thank mm -hmm. you for your presence on social media. I know sometimes you were just being yourself, but I've appreciated all times. I'm just being myself. <laughs> I never make a post. I, 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 I appreciate the compliment. I do. And I appreciate you saying that. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm at this point, I'm sort of like, I guess I, I like understand it as a way I understand it as a way that I'm meaningful to people, um, but it's not. That's like not why I do anything. It's just yeah. like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that that's how people felt. That's uh, now it's I do, and like that's a nice thing to know. But that's not why I'm doing anything. Yeah. Um, and I think the first time that I became aware of that, a friend of mine from high school. I don't remember when this was. It was years ago. I feel like it might have been like during the 2016 elections or something like that, mm -hmm. a friend of mine from high school, like commented on something that I posted. And she was like, I knew that you would say something that would help, help me understand this or whatever. And she's like, I come to your page, like trying to figure things out sometimes. And she's like, sometimes if you don't post, I'm like, I need Teresa's voice to like help me. And I was like, Oh wow. I had no idea. Cause I'm just like this random lady that's making posts on Facebook. That's how I see it, you know? So um, yeah, so it's, I, I appreciate that that's, you know, that I, that I can be that for people. And I hear what you're saying in terms of learning and feeling like, you know, to feel like you understand something and then realize that you don't, um, and what that experience is like. Um, and I respect that people are, you know, in, in their own process and that everybody is learning and like, I can't expect folks to like see the world the way or see anything the way that I do mm -hmm. because I see it the way that I do because of my own lived experience and like yeah. you're you're not all living my experience so why would you see it that way um I can't say like even for myself during the pandemic I am a person you know who was raised in like primarily um white communities and so I always felt like I had a pretty good grasp of whiteness in America mm. and there are parts of what has happened in 2020 that made it clear for me that I do not have a full grasp of whiteness in America. 
namely haircuts that like it truly was not until 2020 that I understood how frequently white people need to get their hair cut. I was just like, <laughs> I had no, I had no idea. I did it. I was like, how is it possible that I've been living around white people for this much time? And I didn't know how serious this is. Like, I was just like, I don't get Like, I seriously cut my hair like once every seven years, literally. Like, I go, what? like, I, what? Yes, I go to a hair salon once every seven years. Oh my so, God. I mean, I cut my own hair. Like, if there's, like, a little tuft that's too long, I'll, like, snip it down. But, like, I just don't need to get my hair cut very much. And, like, I didn't know that, like, all these people who've been in my life for all these years are, like, frantically needing to maintain their hair what, once every six weeks. Like, oh, yeah. Four. It was Try truly, four. Every like, four weeks. Yeah. yeah. Like, April, May of 2020, I was, like, this is how you guys have been living the whole time? Uh, I didn't know. I like, was on Ulta buying, like, professional shears and, like, I, equipment to shave and, like, stocking up on, like, hair color and stuff. I was, I was just like, how is it possible that I've lived my whole life and didn't know that this was this was the thing you all were dealing with the whole time? Not a clue. I had no clue. I do not think of myself as a girly girl at all, but I was, like, so obsessed with, like, color street nail strips and, like, hair grooming products and like yeah i signed up for a hair system because i was like i gotta do something with my hair if i'm not having my hair done every four to four to five weeks it was like every every white person in 2020 like all of a sudden became a professional hairdresser to maintain themselves we lost like, our minds we totally lost our minds. i did not know i, yeah. I had no clue yeah. i really had no clue Seriously. and i'm as a person who's like you know told stories about my own hair you know i was like i, I thought i understood it but i didn't yeah it was a part of whiteness that i had no clue yeah and then and then there was also like there you're like have i just been sucked up by the beauty industry to think that i need to have my and and then a ton of people in my circles were um letting their hair grow out letting their mm -hmm. color grow out letting their gray show i have so many people that i know yeah. purposely didn't cut and purposely didn't color and it's kind of um it blows your mind to see what people's real hair color. I'm not there. I have to say I'm not in that camp. I, I'm a very yeah, attached yeah. to my hair color. But um, I, I think it's beautiful. I'm, I think it's liberating. I'm totally on board with it. Um, yeah. I'm not, I think, I'm I mean, not there, though. <laughs> like, are you just being impacted and fucked up and, you know, conditioned, for lack of a better word, by yes. the um, hair industry? Like, possibly but also like this runs deep because i feel like every i know mostly white people and like everyone every white person that i knew was just like in a panic about their hair and i was like wow i had no idea yeah. i really didn't know yeah i got this into such a big deal i got into my hair color really bad and i also uh started buying a lot of kimonos so i was mm. I was yeah, deeply yeah. affected in those two ways. I'm definitely, I mean, I'm a moo-moo lady. I was a moo-moo lady before, like, well before 2020. I was on the moo-moo train for sure. I love a house dress. Yeah. I think it was also in 2020 maybe because of how much, um, you know, so many people that I know on social media and whatnot were talking about needing to maintain their hair as 
I started watching a lot of Brad Mondo videos in 2020, and I still watch them quite a bit. Um, what is it? And I was just like, this is... Brad Mondo is like a professional hairstylist and like um, social media personality. And a, a lot of what he does is he watches videos. He watches YouTube videos of other people think that I could bleach a person's hair because I've watched that many Brad Mondo videos. (laughs) But I would refer back to him for assistance, for sure. I love his videos. You should totally check them out. Does he do, like, TikTok? Is that what it is? No, he's, like, before TikTok. I mean, I think he probably, and they're usually, like, him reviewing another person's YouTube. I watch them on Facebook, though. Oh, okay. Good to know. So we've yeah, we've talked <laughs> we've <laughs> talked about like lighter subjects, a little heavier stuff. Is there anything that we didn't cover that's like pressing? That's something you want to talk about? Yeah, no. I was just saying. I feel like I I was just kind of like excited and anticipating to have the conversation just kind of go where it goes, and I feel fine about where it went. Okay. And there's it doesn't. I don't. I don't have any like pressing. The thing I really wanted to say was this. I just looked at Instagram and saw that Sweeter Kinney's new album is officially out. So I would like to acknowledge that publicly. And I'm very excited about it. <laughs> I remember you telling me that they were like your favorite band. So I love them so much. And I'm very excited about this new album. So um, missing Janet, but very excited. Yeah. And do you have any work coming out or any shows coming up? Um, I have a show tomorrow, actually, um, and I'll be telling a story that I've only told once before, and um, it's not written down, and I'm going to practice, like, telling a story that's not written down, which is not a thing that I do too much, um, and, yeah, that's, I think that's about it, um, yeah. Do you have yeah. any stories and, from the stage coming up that you've recorded? Um, I mean, Stories from the Stage releases every new episodes every week. We're wrapping our fourth season right now, um, and then we'll be getting into the fifth season in the fall. I'm really hoping that it, there's, like, some way that we can figure out to do in-person events again yeah. um, with Stories from the Stage. We've started um, filming in person without an audience um, again um, and I'm hoping like maybe we can have like a small audience or something. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. So I'm looking forward to our fifth season. Thank you so much. You were such a pleasure to talk to. And you have um, I actually did look at some of your because I'm a member of Grub Street. I did look at some of the timing around taking a class with you because I think that you would be so insightful and it would be such a great experience. Some of the timing for me didn't work out, but I have my eye on you. I may show awesome. up in one of your classes. Awesome. I'm looking forward. I'll look forward to that. Uh, and thank you for this conversation. It was great to chat with you, Felicia. Good. And uh, just how can people find you? Uh, yeah. So the easiest way to find me is on my website, which is TeresaOkoken.com. Um, luckily, I'm the only Teresa Okoken in the United States and probably in the world. So very easy to find. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at, oh, geez. Um, I don't remember how many letters are in it. I think it's O-H-H-J-E-E 
You got three Z's. Z's. Yeah, you got three I think Z's. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can find me there. Cool. <laughs> a lot easier if you just go to my website first. And tell Minnie I said hello. She's so cute. I will. She's right next to me snoring. <laughs> what kind of doggy is she again? She knows she's a mixture. She's a, she's a Chihuahua Terrier mix. From some angles, every once in a while, she looks like maybe she's got some corgi in her. I was going to say, she's she looks kind of corgi. Yeah, she does. She does. I sometimes think about getting a, uh, one of those, like, breed test or whatever for her but then i'm like eh, i mean what would i do with that information other than have it so. <laughs> does she have her own instagram she does she does not no I, i'm like she i mean basically minnie's instagram is my instagram sometimes i'm like do you post anything that's not about your dog <laughs> so yeah i mean if you want all of that sweet sweet mini content you really just need to look at my instagram but there's plenty <laughs> It's like mini, and then every once in a while I make an appearance. You know? <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you out, and um, thank you again for your time and for sharing your your work and your your life and your stuff with me. So I really appreciate totally. it. Totally. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Take care. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Calling all artists. Artists have a calling to find ways, however imperfect, to interpret our world. We are philosophers, bridge builders, and weavers. Driven by internal fires lit long ago, the original spark discovered, and the ashes used to paint our stories on the walls. We provide language to the unknowing. Our works are the bumps and dots and braille for the blind to read. We give shape to ideas that live in our mind's eye, however rough they show up. We make connections across spectrums. We fill in the gaps, coloring outside the lines. Art and imagination are the first skills we use to make sense of the world as developing humans. We make pictures and interpret our surroundings in pre-verbal ways. Along the way, we forget we have these innate skills of perception. We pretend ourselves into selective amnesia. We don't remember how we found our worlds magical, colorful, or interesting. If we do hold on to this special artistic language, we claim outsider status, identified as the exception instead of the rule. Google and Facebook talk about being disruptors to the status quo. Artists disrupt to make connections between disparate concepts not just to blow things up like teenage boys who discovered fireworks for the first time. Some art is more obvious than others. It shouts at you and pisses on your feet. Some art is quiet. It sits with you and whispers in your ear. We are ephemeral ghosts pushing loose change off the dresser, seeing if you'll notice. We are spiders lingering in the corners, spinning webs and luring good ideas. Once captured, we must dissolve and digest them. Think of all the artists walking around the world and imagine you are one of them. Hi Felicia is produced by Felicia Ryan and she retains all broadcast rights and copyrights to this program. Theme music provided by Stephanie Griffin. Technical support by Heather McCormick. Our sound editing is done by Sully Banger. Social Media Maven, previous guest, and my online content guru is Rachel Lento. 
Hi Felicia is supported in part by a generous grant from the Malden Cultural Council and recorded in cooperation with UMA Urban Media Arts in downtown Malden. You can find Hi Felicia on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, and most platforms a podcasts are found. Please take a moment to like, download, write a review, and share this program. You are our ears. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Hi Felicia or our guest or how to support this podcast, you can visit our Facebook page, our Instagram page, or www.feliciaryan.com, which is F-E-L-I-C-I-A-R-Y-A-N. And again, thanks for listening.